0: This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation.
1: You need to show people the worst possible harm that that negligence could have caused, because that's what the case is about. What
2: I'm asking you to do is to focus on what you can control, because that's where the power lies.
0: The Dalai Lama uh, has a saying that in the face of
2: anger, justice evaporates. If you can't focus group it, you have to be very, very critical of your process the facts aren't good, you can't create a miracle. We can agree to disagree and be zealous advocates for
1: our clients.
0: Quit worrying about looking perfect. You're not going to. That'll come in time, but you can still be an effective litigator.
1: Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan.
0: Welcome to today's Trial Lawyer Nation. I've got my partner, Mallory Peacock. How are you doing today, Mallory?
2: I'm doing good. I'm doing good. You know, it's a humid day here in Texas, so I'm actually okay to be inside.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And we are talking about how to maximize the value of each case. And uh, just some of, here are some of the things that we've worked, that have worked for us, some of the things we're working on, trying to improve. In the hope that some of y'all can uh, apply this to your practice.
2: Yeah, I think um, we talk a lot or you talk a lot on the podcast about different ideas of how to maximize the value of every case. But I don't think that um, we've really gone into detail to explain what we mean when we say certain things. Um, And so I think that's one of our goals today is to answer some of those questions people have had.
0: Well, let's start from the beginning. I mean, you get a new case that you think has the potential and and you do this all the time. You you get assigned a new case. This case may have the potential to be a really big case or this case may be a dud. We don't know enough facts yet uh, to figure that out. So what do you start doing to look and try to figure out, you know, is this a case that we really want to go put all our of our time and effort into or is this a case that either would be better off settled because increased expenses don't really do the client any good or even a case that would be a better fit for another law firm?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, you start the case, of course, by talking to the client, but it's not just talking to the client and hoping that they tell you whatever it is that you might want to know, having a strategy and going into your client meeting or these are all of the things I need to know from the client um, in order to start my evaluation. But it doesn't end there. Um, You find out about other witnesses. You start doing inspections. You start contacting experts. Um, Unfortunately, I've learned um, that Sometimes you got to spend a little bit of money before you know whether it's done or not.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think the hardest thing for me uh, in learning this lesson, this is going to sound a little counterintuitive has made me so much more money in the long run. And, but I used to be, once I spent money on a case, I had to get some kind of settlement to get my money back. I could not stand to lose money on a case. And so I would take a case and let's say it's a potential automotive product liability case. And so I'd spend fifteen, twenty thousand $20,000 between getting the vehicle Getting a reconstructionist out there right away to preserve the scene, having an expert come in, getting all the, the the medical records, so we can analyze how the injury happened, and we'd find out. You know, we only had a really, really, really tough liability theory, but gosh, I spent that money. I got to go do it, and so I would end up filing the lawsuit, doing a ton of work on it, really pushing it, spending more money with experts, and ended up getting a fee that uh, we we got a settlement on it, but we were selling it. For a very reduced value for either the injury or the death that was involved, cutting the heck out of our fee, having a client that's unhappy just to get my expenses back. And I risked more money and expenses because I have to keep putting money into it. I've since learned that if I just write it off and spend all that time and energy on a case that's gonna make money, uh, I end up making more money in the long in the long run. But it is hard when you've spent real money to do that.
2: Yeah, I think um I think too, something that's can help you not spend as much money at the outset is to do your own research. So if it's an area that you're not as familiar with, so for example, I'm very familiar with trucking, and so I can look at a case and know if regulations were violated almost immediately without much investigation. But if it's um, if it's a type of auto product that we've never done before, or if it's you know just sort of an odd set of facts, then doing the research out front of what are the rules, what are the regulations. What am I looking for here? So that I'm not just sort of, you know, closing my eyes and throwing darts at a dartboard and hoping something sticks, but I have kind of some real questions that I go into the client interview or an inspection or a conversation with an expert um, to ask. And they're outlined, and I already have sort of a general idea of where the case is going, but I'm not totally wed to that either. So if someone else gives me a different idea or if it takes off in a totally different direction, we can shift our focus. It's not. You know, having just sort of that basic understanding of the area of the law and what your goals are uh, helps you save some money in the the long run.
0: I think that's one of the real advantages of specialization because, you know, we've worked so many trucking and company vehicle cases that we do know what the regulations, what the rules are, where most of the pressure points are. Now, sometimes, I mean, if we have, let's say an axle that broke in half or a part falls off a vehicle or some of that. Well, we do need to get someone. I don't know how to inspect an axle and do metallurgy, but 99% of trucking cases, I, I could write the experts report for them. Uh, I don't, but I could because I, I just know this stuff. It's And so do you. Uh, and so those cases, it's a lot easier to take one on and figure out whether you have it. Whereas, you know, I've become a lot more picky about even whether to take on an investigation of a case if it's something where I don't know it myself, I'm either going to have to spend, you know, countless hours of research trying to learn and hoping I'm learning the right thing or, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of dollars of having an expert teach me enough to evaluate the case. And I've stopped just trusting an expert to evaluate a case for me because they they often get excited on technical violations. They don't always understand what proximate cause is or they get too caught up on, you know, whether they violated a particular government regulation and there's, you know, do care is much broader and imposes a higher duty. Uh, But I think that's one of the real things, especially specializing in one area. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm glad that, you know, we made the decision that, you know, unless it's a potential seven-figure case, we're not even going to look at something that's not trucking a commercial vehicle.
2: Yeah. I You know, I think, too, um, I Mm – there's people at our firm that have different strengths. And I think um, recently I've had to admit that one of my strengths is not science and math. <laughs> um, and so when there's a complicated technical math thing that's involved or science or you know something like that, it, it's harder for me to understand. And so I need to call in reinforcements and I can't just rely on the expert to teach it to me. Um, I need someone, one of the other lawyers at the firm like you, who understands that stuff a little bit better to help me narrow the scope of what I'm asking my expert to do. Um, and also, you know, make sure I can make it understandable to a jury or, you know, a judge. Um, but I think recognizing your own uh, weaknesses helps too. Absolutely. What's they say? Uh,
0: a man's got to know his limitations. Uh-huh. I guess a woman does too. Uh-huh. I mean, we, we all have our strengths, but we're not strong on everything. And I think that's one of the good things about either, having other people you work with in your firm or collaborating with people in other firms. And, you know, sometimes it's better to to split the pie and have a bigger pie. And even if you don't double the size or triple the size of the one case, the fact that you're spending your time doing what you're good at making money instead of trying to learn all new things, when you could bring someone else in and have them teach you those things a lot more efficiently, you often end up making more money at the end of the day. And it's not just about money. The clients are better served. They get a quicker result. They get more money when there's a specialist working on the case.
2: Yeah, and I think also being able to understand sort of the bucket that the case falls in. So if it's a bucket that involves trucking regulations, well, I can read all the trucking regulations, I know most of them, um, and understand them. It's the same as if I have a case that involves a lot of OSHA regulations. Generally, I know that I can read the OSHA regulations and understand them and put something together. But if it's something about design stuff, um, I, I need more help with that. I need an expert to help me. I need you to help me um, a little bit more because that, that doesn't come intuitively to me.
0: But even the OSHA regulation, I mean, someone will describe like a piece of equipment to me. I won't really know what it is. So sometimes I, I'm looking at the wrong regulation because, you know, I didn't realize that this was a pallet jack, not a stand up forklift, or, or I mean, whatever it is, you know, this sometimes they have these technical distinctions and which reg applies depends on on what it is. And if you don't have that, expertise. I mean, you can really go down the, down a rabbit trail and make some mistakes. Although, you know, most mistakes are recoverable. You hire your expert, he does you, you're wrong and you fix it. And as long as you're not hiring your expert, you know, three days before your deadline, uh, it, it works out.
2: You know, and that's, um, that's something that I don't want to gloss over in our conversation. Um, when I'm talking about investigating cases, we're talking about it in terms of investigating them with an expert. Um, you know, sometimes we do it by ourselves I and mean, we could do some things by ourselves. But the sooner that you hire an expert and get on the same page about what the case is about and what you should be looking for, I mean, the better off your case is going to be.
0: Yeah, we've had some cases where we've actually booked meetings with experts before we've even filed the case. What do you think some some advantages of doing that are?
2: So I think there's um, only advantages. I think anything that you would say is a disadvantage. I think I could construe as an advantage. Um, I think uh, the best thing about it is it helps you focus um, yourself and your research on things that are actually important and are actually going to matter in the case at the end of the day. Um, Because the experts do investigations of these kind of cases all the time, they can point you towards sort of the body of law or the body of, you know, um, literature uh, to educate yourself um, in preparation for your deposition. So that you've read all the things that you need to read before you go into a deposition. So when someone answers a question, you know how you need to respond or react to it um, appropriately within the deposition and you can get the most bang for your buck.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think the the being educated on the case and a couple things. One is I'm saying, is this really the expert that I want to work with. I mean, if the person is hard to work with, the person won't schedule a meeting, you know, they're going to do everything at the last minute, uh, that they have a formula. They don't want to think through the case. And, you know, I think it's important. And you, you've been very strong on this too, that, uh, an expert will have what we call anchors for all their opinions, which is, it's just not saying, well, based on my experience, pre education, I think this is what people should do, but here's a, not necessarily regulation, but at least an industry standard, a, publication an article what other companies have done in their manuals just something that the expert can rely on saying it's not just me saying this and some experts don't want to do that uh some because they're worried they're going to get they want to be able to say whatever they want to say in any case and they don't want to get constrained by something and and i get it that's what they want to do and rule 702 says they can do it but they can't do it if they're gonna work for me uh you know i'm paying them and as ronnie Juice says in american dollars uh and if, (laughs) if they want that money uh then they're going to do it. And, and actually what I'm asking them to do is to be real experts and not just make crap up. But I mean, actually have, if you're an expert, you learned this somewhere where it's got to be written down somewhere. Where can we document that? This is really the rule, This is really the standard. And, uh, even it's just a bunch of other depositions, but something. Uh, and so one, when I read that stuff, then I can learn what the rules are and know what the company or the driver, whoever it is should have thought should have been doing. Uh, but two, I can make sure this is the right expert that's going to do things in a way that's going to be persuasive to a jury.
2: Yeah, I um, I agree. I, you know, we, we talk about storyboarding, um, which I think has a different meaning to different people. Um, I think when people think of storyboarding, they think of maybe a movie or something. But we're actually storyboarding um, depositions. What do you mean by storyboarding? And so – what I mean is that you're planning out exactly how you want things to unfold. Um, you're building a story, but also even a specific part of the story. So you don't have to have the whole story all at once, right? Ready for trial. Um, when you're thinking about the way you want a deposition to unfold, you're going through and there's not boards that I use in this case, but I have an outline where I'm, I say, here are the buckets that of the universe of things that I need to talk to this witness about. And within each bucket I put my publication, this is the commercial driver's license manual applies to this bucket. In the second bucket, you know, the Werner manual applies to this bucket, right? And so I'm going through the universe of all of the material that you could possibly have in a single case and identifying what do I really need? Like what makes this impactful, or not um, for, for a jury and again, yeah, get rid of the stuff that's not impactful.
0: <laughs> yeah. Cause you really have to think. And it's one thing where I think experts and, and lawyers that are, I think it's really dangerous when you're between, let's say a hundred percent is mastery between 50 and 80%. is where I see this a lot, where you've learned the rules, you know what they are, but you have to think is, is the violation causal? I mean, so yes, they violated a rule. Did that, caused the crash, and are we being nitpicky? I mean, is it a real violation or is it, you know, okay, let's say you have 11 hours to drive and you drove 11 hours and five minutes. Yes, that is a violation. Is a jury going to get that mad about it? You know, unless I've got a bunch of other stuff, probably not. I'm probably going to look like I'm nitpicking bike getting after somebody over five minutes. Uh, I'm not suggesting that's right. I mean, I think it's ridiculous if you want to drive 11 hours, personally, but I think we have to really look at that um, uh, and, and I'll give an example, if you don't mind.
2: Yeah, no, so, that's what I was going to ask you is, can you give us a, a real specific, a more specific example yeah, so of ye- you seen this?
0: Yesterday, uh, you know, yeah, I guess the depots will happen. I, I hope book opposing counsel doesn't listen to this. It's an ongoing <laughs> case. but So I'm, I'm hiking. Uh, I'm trying to get back in, in shape. And one of the other lawyers called me and since I'm walking, not running right now. I can talk while I'm hiking. It's awesome. Uh, and she had just done a depot And it was a, of a truck driver who needed an interpreter because he didn't speak, read, and write English. Uh, and I'm always real. And there's a regulation saying you have to be able to to be a tr- qualified truck driver. You have to read English well enough to understand road signs and speak it well enough to communicate with the an officer if need be. Uh, and in this case, he could not read his own documents like he couldn't go over his logbooks, for example, because he couldn't read them, uh, which I don't know how he filled them out. Uh, but it wasn't a logbook case. It was a failure to yield the right away case. And it wasn't based on a written sign. It was based on what does a blinking yellow light mean? Uh, Can you make an unprotected left turn on a blinking yellow light when there's a car coming the other way? No, you can't. You don't have to speak, read anything to do that. And so I'm like, okay, I I know this is exciting. I know that they broke the rule. But how in the world did that cause the wreck? And then we don't want to look like we're trying to... Appeal to some kind of prejudice against people from other countries or people who don't speak English, especially in the particular venue where we are. Where it's a, it's uh, although this was a someone from a former Soviet country that didn't speak English. We have a primary Spanish speaking venue, and we, we could we could be seen as the, especially you know I'm a big white guy. It's a white woman lawyer on our side. You know, like we're the big mean people that discriminate against people. But then when we talked it, we talked about it more. I said, well, isn't it still more of a training case? I mean, how can we make it about the company, not just the driver? What did they do? Did they ever drive with them? And he goes, well, they said they provided training and he took the company in line that, you know, they trained every two months. Well, what kind of training they did? And, you know, did they make him do any training after this? Yeah, they made him watch JJ Keller videos. Ding, 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 ding. Okay. JJ <laughs> Keller videos, those are in English. They don't have any Uzbeki language. This guy was in Uzbekistan. JJ uh, <laughs> Keller videos. So now we have. You're providing training in English to people that don't speak English. I mean, if you're going to hire people that don't speak English, train them in their language. Make sure that they actually understand it. Because if not, you're just you're just covering your butt. You're not you don't care about training. You care about telling a jury later you, you provide a training. Yeah. Uh, and now we got something, it, but it took that thought process of how do we tie the violation, how do we make it not nitpicking, and how do we tie it to having caused this crash? Right. And we had and, and the driver. The other thing is the driver insisted he did nothing wrong.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think um, causation is something that's, it's challenging. Um, And so a lot of people think, well, I'll I'll figure it out later. But really, you need to be thinking about that um, before you go into your depositions because you want to focus on the things that matter and you want to focus on the right things. Um, And you don't want to focus on things that don't matter um, because that's not a good use of your time, but it also... um, it it muddies the water it makes the story incomprehensible to people um i think you know one of the one of the big things that i see often is some someone will call and say well they don't have any dq file right for the driver driver qualification file which is something that you're supposed to have yeah. as the trucking company under the federal motor carrier safety regulations but the issue is what part of not having a driver qualification file caused the wreck which is it's a tough question. Sometimes there is something about not having the DQ file that caused the wreck. For example? For example, um, let's say that they would have never hired this driver had they done what they needed to do when they were qualifying the driver, like looking into his background and doing a driver record check and talking to his prior employers. And he'd had drug violations before and other wrecks and speeding tickets all over the place. And so he would have never been qualified to drive and he shouldn't have ever been on the road. Well, that could be causal because maybe this wreck is about someone on drugs or it's about someone that was speeding. Right. Um, but, or
0: just so bad that they wouldn't hire him. He's just an unsafe right, driver.
2: Right. But if it's, you know, they didn't have an application, but he actually has a spotless driving record. Okay. Well, what does that have to do with this wreck? Yeah. Nothing. And I mean,
0: we had that happen on the case recently. Yeah. I mean, we, they didn't contact the former employers. They didn't check the dr- driving record. Right. But when we got the stuff, you know, it turned out, yeah, he had prior crashes, but he was telling her he wasn't at fault in those prior crashes. I mean, we looked at it like a one, a drunk driver ran into the back of his truck. Something, Someone else crossed the center line and hit him. I mean, we got the police reports and found out, no, this wasn't causal. Yes, he, they they didn't look. Had they looked, they would have found out he'd been in two other crashes. Uh, but had they found out all the facts of those two other crashes, they would have hired him anyway because it weren't his fault. We still had to do the work. You don't know if you don't do the work, but trying to bring up that technical violation when it didn't cause our crash to me, it, it makes us, if you have a jury that's skeptical about you, cause they're skeptical about lawyers in general. And one of the things I think they get lawyers is we, we bring up things that don't matter to try to get a jury mad at somebody to give money and to do things that aren't logical and aren't just. And I think we have to really ask ourselves when we bring up a role violation, is this just to bring up, did it have anything to do with the crash? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that doesn't mean we, we don't become creative in trying to find a way that we can argue it's part of the crash. But if it's not credible, I think we have to learn to let it go. Just because we find a violation, you know, we don't necessarily want to bring every single violation in the case.
2: Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of conversation. I've um, listened to quite a few guests on the podcast, and I, I agree with this completely, um, but I have a caveat to it. So people say you need to focus on the company, right? But That doesn't mean that you can ignore what happened in the crash, right? You still have to have causation, so even if it's the worst company in the world, if it had nothing to do with the crash, um, you know focusing on the company, you need to find some connection, right so you, you can't ignore completely the facts of the crash or the facts about the driver um, because you still have to know that in order to refocus on the company
0: and we always want to look to try to make a case about a systems failure and try to make a you know company failure that if not corrected will cause another crash. And if there is a credible, persuasive story, that is a better story to tell at trial than a driver making a mistake. But if after investigating that, you don't have a credible story. Like Joe Freed says, you want to make it about the company unless the company did anything wrong. Then you got to look at the driver. I mean, you still have to make the case you have. In some cases, it's not all the time, but we've seen even trucking companies. Trucking companies did a pretty darn good job. They're like when the top. 5% 5% of all train companies we've ever seen, they had training, they followed all the rules, and their driver still ran into somebody. Well, in that case, it's really about the driver. And, and if we try to make it about a company, we're going to lose credibility. It's not going to get the jury more upset. It's going to make the jury think that we're being stupid. They're not going to you know, get it or they're going to want to punish us for saying something that's not true.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. And there's other things that um, – there are other kinds of system failures that can come after the crash, um, that can make a jury upset. So people challenging whether your person was really hurt, um, stuff like that, that can make a jury upset, uh, that doesn't have to do necessarily with the company. It's about their conduct afterwards. So it doesn't yeah. mean all is lost just because you don't, you right. know, you don't have a, a really strong system failure with the company. You just have to look in other places um, yeah. but- and to make your story. So your story is different.
0: I think you know we we like to talk about systems failure because it's it's a it's a logical way to construct a case, but we I think it it still helps to take a step back. Juries are not necessarily upset, and we you're not necessarily a systems failure for the goal of having a systems failure. You're looking at what threatens the jury, what upsets the jury, why did you, and why do jurors get upset because they're threatened? Because darn it, this could happen to me, or this could happen to my family. Either this bad driver could go. And a lot of times this, is, this bad driver can go hurt us and they're going to be on the road if we don't do something about it. But it could also be that, hey, someone can hurt us and then people are going to try to lie about it. People are trying to get away with it. That, that post crash conduct, the conduct in the litigation piles on and adds to the harm and that creates the danger. And we've had nice verdicts. You and I have tried the case together where that was all we had. and uh, But the defense luckily overplayed their hand and we were able to, to show the jury that, hey, you've, they can do this to this woman. They can do it to anybody. Uh, you know, they can always hire a paid opinion witness to say you're not hurt. You can always hire a paid opinionist to say your injury is caused by something else, even when no one else in the world, everyone else in the world, they knew you said you weren't hurt before and you've been hurt ever since. And, you know, I think if we do that right, that's another way to get the jury mad. It's just finding out what is the key to maximizing the value of that particular case, not what works into so-and-so's formula or so-and-so's book or what this consultant said.
2: Right. No, I I definitely agree, and um, and you have to be willing to change course. So that's and, and that goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. You do your investigation, but you don't you don't write it in blood, right? right. <laughs> Whatever your theory is, you you let the facts of the case shape what the case is. But you can also lead the shape of the case as well. I mean, yeah. you don't want to just go in blindly asking a bunch of series of random questions um, that aren't pointed or useful um, by the time you get to trial.
0: But we have had many cases where we come in with one idea of what the case is going to be. And then we, when we get digging, we find a much better story.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah.
0: And as long mm-hmm. as it's a true story and a story that resonates, I mean, you go with what's best. You don't let your your ego get in the way or saying, well, this is the method I'm doing. The method I'm doing is you plan it out before you follow suit. And now you got to follow that path wherever it leads. It's like, no, uh, you. this is your – it's like being a, scient- a, a real scientist uh, where – I have a working hypothesis of what I think is going to happen, but then I'm going to look at the evidence and if the evidence shows my hypothesis is wrong then, and there's a better explanation, then I'm going to switch to that better explanation. I'm not going to let my ego or my sticking to doctrine get in the way.
1: Each year, the law firm of Callen Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. And now, back to the show.
2: So, speaking of evidence, um, there's a lot of different places to get evidence. And it's not just from the defendant. So, what... Where are some of the places that you found are really good resources to go and try and uh, get information about your case
0: okay well a few things one there there is nothing like going to where it happened and looking at it with your own eyes driving the route that each person would have driven uh, walking around uh, it just gives you a better feel for the case and what happened looking around for cameras and sometimes we've found a business nearby that happened to have captured the wreck or maybe it's just someone the way they're driving leading up to the wreck. Like sometimes we just, we don't see the, the, the crash, but we say our car is car speeding by going much faster than all the other vehicles. Uh, and so, you know, just that, it's not very expensive. It just takes a little bit of time, but there's just something about getting out there, talking to people that makes a huge difference. The other thing that I found really helpful is, especially if you're in a regulated industry like trucking, Um, there is so much you can get from public information requests or Freedom of Information Act requests. Um, just, I don't know, trucking, there's information on all the inspections they've had, any weather crashes they've had, what violations, when they've been warned about violations, sometimes even, you know, they get audited for a compliance review and they get a safety rating. And so it's like satisfactory is the best rating, which means they're good enough. Conditional is like, you've got some real problems. We're not going to put you out of business. And unsatisfactory is you cannot operate anymore unless you convince us you've changed. Uh, well, a lot of times you'll see satisfactory is the rating. But then to get the satisfactory, you'll find that they, the government noted all these problems in their inspection. But because they promised to fix those problems, they went ahead and left them in satisfactory. And, you know, a lot of times you find that those same violations happen in your case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now we don't just have a case where someone broke the rules. We have a case where someone got caught breaking the rules. They were told, "Hey, you're breaking the rules. You have to stop doing this." They promised, and to stay in business, they promised, "We will promise we will do this from now on. This is our plan." And then when the government inspector went away, they went back to breaking the rules. Yeah, I think that's a much better case.
2: Yeah, and I think um, you know if if you've been following along with the podcast, that sounds a lot like gross negligence. to me. Yeah, exactly. So um, you know, so you can get get other kinds of. Um, causes of action when you when you do that. Um, and broken promises are just some of the most upsetting things to anybody, um, jurors included.
0: Yeah, it really takes, you know, out of what that defensive attribution, which is, you know, the one thing that defendants think is, one, you know, this wouldn't have happened to me because I wouldn't have put myself in a situation the plaintiff had. But then there's also the fear, I don't know, maybe it's not defensive attribution, but it's like, I would hate to be sued and lose everything because I made a mistake. And there's this fear that if this could happen to somebody else, it could happen to me, and I don't want to live in a world where I'm doing my very best, and unbeknownst to me, I make some little bitty mistake that I didn't even realize I made, and now I lose everything. Uh, and I think that's that's a very real and realistic fear because of people misconstruing. You know, most good verdicts are not based on someone making a little mistake, uh, and so I think the more you can show that it was a a choice and that they had knowledge that this is important, this is unsafe, you can people can get hurt that you promise not to do this and then you do it anyway not just the broken promise but the knowledge that what i'm doing is wrong makes the jury want to say okay now this person is different than me they they did they knew something was wrong they did it anyway they don't care and now we got to do something about this because these kind of people in the world are a threat to me and my family so i'm in a reptile mood today if you can't tell yeah. <laughs>
2: So so there's actually a lot of other industries um, where companies need to make promises to stay in in business. It's not just trucking. So this can apply to your workplace safety um, case. So people make promises to OSHA if they've had OSHA violations before and settlements and things like that. Um, Or people make promises um, if they're a restaurant or something like that. And it's a Slip and Ball case. They're making promises about the safety of the premises to whoever they're leasing the building from. Um, so there's promises in places that you might not expect.
0: Yeah, our health code violations, they may have noticed water on the floor or leaking ice machines or mm-hmm. other things, you know, bars, you know, they, if they've had people get caught for over serving or serving underage drinkers before, which you often have, you find that history of violations through your, we just resolved a dram shop case. And that's one of the things that was helpful was finding the, that this particular entity had broken the rules before and they'd been caught and you know then it happened again so just showing that knowledge that hey you do have a problem with your employees whatever training you say you did it, it ain't working because you know the Alcoholic Beverage Commission has been in here and they've caught them breaking the rules and find them and uh, now it's happening again it's much less of a you know it's so unfair to us we've spent all these years building up this business and one employee makes does something wrong how do we control what every little person does uh, I think it just you know the more we're fair yeah. the more likely we are to win
2: yeah. And so you should be looking for broken promises or just any promises um, in every single case that involves a company. Because a company serve, uh, exists generally to make money um, and have customers of some kind. So there's some promise they're making somewhere down the line to someone about something. Right. Now, it might not be related to your case, but you should be trying to pull at that thread to figure out who, who are they making representations to out in the public, um, in order to have their business operate effectively? Is it to customers? Is it to the landlord? Is it to government agencies? Um, and you kind of pull up that thread and see, you know, is there a promise that I can use in my case that they broke?
0: Yeah, even on company websites. I mean, mm-hmm. in company sales materials, mm-hmm. they often promise how safe they're going to be, all the all the different safety trainings they do. Uh, and that makes a big, even truck brokers. I mean, they, some of the brokers say, we, we, we screen and make sure we have the very best carriers and you depose them. And they're like, we just make sure they have a license. It's like, well, that's very different than what you're telling your customers. Um,
2: And so um, Freedom of Information Act requests, of course, will get you information from government entities. But um, I think there's something to be said about very targeted, specific discovery. Once you have sort of a universe of documents that are, you know, you kind of need to get in every case, you review them. And, you know, how do you how do you get more? Yes.
0: Yeah, I think that's and I think it's real. Dang, you know, forms are useful uh, because you you if you try to reinvent the wheel in every case, you're going to forget things. So I, I'm not saying don't use forms. We use form discovery. I mean, we wrote we wrote ourselves, but we wrote it based on I've gotten discovery from a lot of great and lawyers and been able to get theirs and take what I thought was best and combine it to a set. But then we have to look at the issues in our case. And so what I try to do is you know, and it's kind of taking a step back. And this is, it, if I have time, I can't do this in every case, but I look at what was the immediate cause of the crash and I list all of them I can think of, you know, so it could be driver was mad and wanted to hit somebody. Driver was drunk. Driver fell asleep. I'm talking about like a rear car fell asleep. Driver was falling too closely. Driver was distracted and just come up with as many lists of immediate causes. And then I look at this, can I eliminate any of these just based on the limited information I know? Well, you know, no one's alleging in the police report or anything else that he would did it on purpose. Well, the police officer didn't suspect alcohol or drugs. So I'm going to take that off the, you know, and so I go through and I get a list of like five, four to five things that are realistic possibilities. And so based on my gut feeling, which of these are the most realistic? And then I will go do a root cause analysis. The five whys. Well, if it's because he was falling too closely. So why did the crash happen? Because he was falling too closely. Why was he falling too closely? Well, Probably because he didn't know any better, or he didn't realize how dangerous it was. Well, why didn't he do that? Well, because the company didn't tell him or the company didn't you know, that's my working theory. And so I, I work up to why didn't the company tell him because they didn't want to spend the time and money to adequately train people. So I work up into but my hypothesis is going to be for the case. And then I ask myself, okay, what do I need to get? What questions do I need to ask? What pieces of paper could I get that would show me what it's true on That would that could possibly prove this. And then I try to write it out. And then when I finish them, then I go back and look at my forms. Like, oh, my gosh, I forgot this. I'm so stupid. I got to include this stuff, too. So usually what we'll do is we'll, send, we'll generate our form, which we can generate from our case management system. But then we'll add the specific stuff for the case after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, again, that's just what you thought when you're beginning, you're doing your working hypothesis. Well, then you take a depot. And, again, this is hard to do because we, it's so often we, we take a depot, we go home, then we go on to our next thing. But taking the time out, go through your notes. Are there any other documents I want to give? Are, are my working hypothesis, is one, have, have I ruled one out or have I made one more likely? Am, am I able to work to like a final hypothesis or are they all wrong? Do I need to kind of re-strategize my whole case? And then go back, what other discovery requests do I need to send? And let's do it now while the case is fresh. What other requests for production do I need to make? What other de- who else do I need to possibly depose? Anything else I need to compel that I already asked for, they didn't give me, that I learned about in this deposition? And if you do that after every deposition, just take an hour to just sit down and go over go over your notes while it's fresh. Because when I don't do that, invariably, I'm getting ready for trial. I'm going to start jury selection the next day. I'm going through my notes, and I see all these things like, red stars, be sure to get this. Red stars, be sure to follow up on that. I'm like... F me right. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, my gosh, I'm such a freaking loser. <laughs> and that's the worst of the day before jury selection is the worst time to think that. and uh, But it's just because I meant to do it. But then I got back into my daily routine, started working on the cases. And then I didn't go back and review my notes until it was too late to get it done. So I think the the looking at it, jumping on it right then and there.
2: I'd like to add a little practice tip for people, um, because one one thing that um, I think a lot of people struggle with, me included, is creating something out of nothing. It's always easier for me to edit something that's already created than to just sit down and just come up with something. Um, and so after a deposition um, or even after I get a transcript, one of the things that I do is I use an app called Speak right, Um, and I just dictate points, just sort of randomly talk into the dictation. And then they send me back a dictation of it. And then I can start reorganizing it into what looks starts to look more like an interrogatory or a request for production or a request for admission. Um, but it's easier that way for me because then you're not just trying to sit down and write 10 new requests for production. You're using words that you took out of the transcript or words that you took out of your notes to to create something. Um, I've I found that to be much easier for me to do it that way.
0: I agree 100%. What I find when I, when I handwrite something, it stays handwritten and it stays in the file. When I dictate it, even if just going through my handwritten notes, if I dictate it to speak right, then I get a Word file or a Word perfect file. I have finally joined the 21st century and I'm switching to Word. Uh, but then it's a file. It's so much easier to either for me to do it or if, I don't, if I'm don't, running out of time since I'm spoiled and I have a law firm, I forward it to someone else saying, make sure you draft some discovery based on this memo. Uh, but it's a much, it just seems like more likely to get done and easier to get done when you dictate it. And the other thing is I just... And maybe because I'm getting old, but I get tired of typing. I just sometimes, especially when, you, when you're going from a piece of paper, like your legal pad, to your computer and having to go back and forth. Or you're trying to like, you're on a laptop and you're trying to look at a PDF file and then switch back and forth to try to keep them both open, the same screen. And it's just such a pain in the ass that I just find that going to the old fashioned dictation and speak right, S-P-E-A-K-W-R-I-T-E is one app. Uh, it's fairly, it's like a penny or a penny and a half a word. Uh, there's also RevREV.com also does it. And you you dictate these apps and they have an actual human being that will then type it to you. And within a few hours, you get your uh, dictation back. Uh, I know my phone will also dictate for me. And it's not bad, but I, I just like the person one because I have to watch it while it's going and then go back and correct it all the time. And mm-hmm. I just, my son always says, why are you wasting money, dad? You can just use this, the dictation on the phone, but it's just. <laughs> You know, it's 90% as good, but, you know, for five bucks a memo, I just would rather get it 100% as good.
2: Yeah, I think um, I think that, that that's one of the reasons that sometimes it's easy to put off these things. Um, and I think that there's, um, people are afraid, I don't know why, but to send a request for production that literally gets you one document, that's okay. Because then you can get what you want. Send the request that says, please send me. What you mentioned on Bates page 933, yeah. title X, send me that document. And that's okay. If that's the request for production, you can send a request for production for one document.
0: Yeah. We, we've had, <laughs> uh, you know, like someone attached gave us a PDF email. I, I will sometimes ask for, please give me the document, the attachment, titled this to the email on this date, which was produced as Bates number whatever. Uh, and uh, even... The other time that's really useful is let's say you're doing a product case. Let's say you're doing a, a seatback case against General Motors and you have networked with other lawyers before you even filed the lawsuit and you found out what the hot documents are. When you request, I want the memo by this person written with this title on this date and you request the hot docs by name, they go into the case knowing that you know what you're doing mm-hmm. and you, that you know they exist and they're not going to be able to pull the wool over your eyes and it makes a huge difference. So I think being – and also when they try to say, oh, vague and overbroad and all the stuffs," like, how is this vague and overbroad? I'm telling you the exact document I want.
2: Yeah. I think it really endears you to um, the judge as well because if you're going to have to have a motion to compel when you're asking for something very, very specific by name, I mean, what complaint could they possibly have about it? I mean, yeah. you know, and, you know, everybody should always keep in mind just because it's discoverable doesn't mean it's admissible. I don't know how many times I have to repeat that. Um, in hearings to opposing counsel to people at our firm is just because they can discover it or we can discover it doesn't mean it's admissible. You should not be fighting over admissibility at the right. time that you're requesting documents. You should be fighting over whether it's discoverable. And it's – the defense's strategy is to get you talking about whether it's admissible because then that's a different question. Um, and it's hard to say when you haven't read the darn thing. Right, right. Um so, uh, speaking of going through documents, one of the things we've mentioned um, on the podcast, I think a few times, is something that we take advantage of a lot at this firm, is what we call spending three uninterrupted hours on a
0: file.
2: Three plus. Three under, plus uninterrupted minimum hours. Minimum
0: three.
2: I've spent much more than three uninterrupted hours on cases, but um, can you? Uh, I guess you know. I think we've talked about it before, but not explained what we do during those three plus interrupted hours.
0: Yeah. Uh, and my rule is got to be something offensive, uh, not like offensive like it offends somebody, <laughs> <laughs> but offensive like we're playing offense. We're moving, so you know, because I had people say, well, "I have to answer discovery this week, I have to prep my client for nothing, no, That don't count because mm-hmm. what, what I mean by that, we have something we are. We're following a book called "The Four Disciplines of Execution," which means, in addition to what we call the whirlwind, which is all the things you have to do on a case every day because you have a deadline, because you have discovery, something due. These are something you're purposefully doing that is going to move a case closer to resolution or increase the value of that resolution. And we have a a list of like seven or eight categories, like filing your lawsuit, getting a trial date, taking offensive depots. But one of them we added this year is spending three or more uninterrupted hours on a case because, and it has to be working on the case, planning out my case, uh, analyzing my case, strategizing on my case. Because what we found is that We get so busy between meeting deadlines and going from depot to depot to hearing to hearing that we don't take the time to sit back and strategize. And as a result, and we found that on our biggest cases, the really big results that we've gotten have been the product of having spent lots of time just thinking about this case and and planning and strategizing and, you know, working out, reading all the documents carefully and finding the hot documents and then having very specific Discovery requests, to follow up to get additional documents, very specific people to depose next, and and digging deep. Uh, so we really try to. We've actually made that one of our systems at the firm now that we require people to. We don't tell them which case, but you know, put aside time. You know, every week to pick a case and spend three or more uninterrupted hours just working, focusing on that one case.
2: So why is it important that it's uninterrupted hours? I mean, you know, I think everybody that listens to the podcast can say, well, I spend, you know, a hundred hours on this case before it's finally resolved. Um, what What is it about the uninterrupted part that's important?
0: Because every time you have an interruption, you lose focus. And you it takes you, when it takes, you forget what you're doing. And it just takes time for things to gel. And so spending three hours... Nonstop on one thing is different than spending 30 minutes, you know, six times during that week on it. Because you have to get back up to speed. You have to gel. You have to come up with an idea and realize that's a good idea, come up with another idea. You know, you just have to, it just takes time. And you, and you, And every time you look at a case again, you still have to revisit it. I mean, you never remember everything. So you have to go reread depots. You need to reread documents. You need to go put them in a place where you can find them again. Create notes or some system for managing your information so that you'll remember it and know what to do next. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I just found that any less than three hours just isn't enough to really plan something out.
2: Yeah. And I think, um, you know, the spending three hours thinking about a case is not just – I mean, it's never – I'm not going to say never, but I I have not spent that time just sitting in a room generally thinking about a case. Um, You don't have to plan it out ahead of time, I will say, for people who are feeling intimidated by the idea of doing this. Um, But what I usually do is if I'm like, you know what, I need to brainstorm about this case, um, I start with, okay, well, let me just read carefully every document that they've produced. Let me start there. And then inevitably, as I start to read, I start to put documents together and piece it together in my mind in a story. Um, so just start at the beginning, read every document they produced, and then that'll help you, your brain get going, the creativity get going. I mean, one of the reasons that I love being a lawyer is this exact process is the creative process is the putting puzzles together um, and, and coming up with a story. It's the most fun part of it for me. Um,
0: and Google time. Uh-huh. I mean, Let's just Google the company. Let's Google the issue. I mean, if you have something on driver fatigue. Let's Google driver fatigue and start. It's not the same as having an expert pull you the best scientific studies, but you find a lot of really good stuff just by doing you know good Google searches, looking at company websites, finding the literature and reading it, and then highlighting what's important. And then then I'll go into speak right and dictate out the parts I highlighted so I can have a memo of the key phrases for the literature I want to go make into exhibits later or use as anchors in my case. Uh, and, but it just takes time to rip on it. And every time you get interrupted, you lose where you were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and which means that I've had to teach people, you know, during this time, I'm not going to respond to your text. I'm not going to answer your phone call. I'm not going to look at my email. And so, cause, and it's so email grabs your so much. I, I, I try to turn off the little alerts that pop up. I try, I turn off the alerts on my phone, but it's still, it's so easy. Well, let me just go check my email. No if you check your email real quick, you will think about something else and it will take you 20 or 30 minutes to get back to where you are. And sometimes you never get back. You had like some brilliant idea that was dating. and it's like almost there. And then someone interrupts you and then you, it's gone and you've lost it. The inspiration is gone and you may never find it again.
2: Yeah. Uh, that, that's really frustrating. Well, I've definitely been in that situation before where you're reading some document and someone walks into your office and inter- interrupts you and then you, you had this great idea and it just eats at you for days. You're like, ah, there was something there. <laughs> I just lost it completely. Yeah, um, But uh, but yeah, that's the, I think that's the purpose of the uninterrupted. But don't be intimidated by it. It doesn't have to be – you don't have to have necessarily a specific goal in mind um, to do the three interrupted hours. So some people think, well, I need to do it to prepare for an offensive depot, right? I'm going to take the defendant driver's deposition. So that's what I'm going to do. You can do it in that scenario, but you should also be doing this without a specific goal in mind other than to understand the case better. Um, and that and then that's how you get the google. That's how you start reading every piece of document that's been produced or every piece of paper that you've gotten from a FOIA request and sit, sitting down and spending the time to actually read it word for word everything on that page because you might find something you missed before.
0: And I think there's the earlier you do it. And and you know, I'm not saying you don't just do it once on a case mm-hmm. if it's a, Significant case. You want to spend a lot of uninterrupted time on it. But the earlier you do it, the earlier you start brainstorming, the earlier you start thinking about the case. It's just, it's just something magical. I mean, when we've when we've seen it, when we've taken the time to brainstorm and map out our case, then we ask the right questions in depot. We have the right. We we sense when someone's not telling us. You, you hear what's not said between words, and you follow up, uh, and you get this great testimony that you can then follow up on other things. You know what documents should be there, so you compel them, and you catch the defense when they're playing the games with you and uh, re- you know, using different terms or different games to not give you what they owe you. Uh, so you know the earlier the better. Uh, and I know a lot of lawyers, a lot of listeners. You know you're at a firm and you have what well, I used to have, like eighty to hundred cases or more. Yeah. Uh, you don't have time to do this in every case. Well, that's fine, but if you want to be a good lawyer, you want to develop yourself. Pick one. To pick your best one or two cases and do this, and it will make you a better lawyer. And what you will do is when you start getting bigger values on cases, you can start having fewer cases because you're getting more per case. And uh you just find that the magic happens when you put the work in.
2: Um And I think every time you start your three-plus hours, whether you're working towards a deposition um, or you're working towards understanding the case better, I think at the beginning you should – Either write it down or just have it in your head. The question should be, what is this case about? Um, and ultimately that's what you're trying to find by doing this. Whether it's to prepare for a deposition or not, you always need to have in your mind, what is this case about? What is it about? What is it about? What is it about? Keep asking yourself that um, and you'll get to a really clear story eventually. It takes time. You're not gonna, you're not gonna answer the question five seconds into your brainstorm, right? But just be thinking about your goal of this is to ultimately have a case that is very presentable, understandable and concise for a jury. Yeah. Um, and, and as you do it, I, I know one of the things that I I love to do um, is this, this, sounds really nerdy, but I, I love to read the defendant's discovery page by page, word by word. Um, so that I can start thinking, well, what is this? Why did they do that? Why did they write that? What is this for? What, what made them want to write this weird policy? Did something happen? Like what, you know, and yeah. and it, and it You're asking questions about everything that you find, or this seems incomplete. What else do I need here? Um, And I know one of the things that me and Michael were talking about just before we started recording today is, does this document speak for itself, or do I need something else to explain it? Um, And if you need something else, it could be testimony, it could be other resources, it could be an expert to explain what it is, but it helps you get everything organized and in a presentable way at trial. Before your two days before trial and thinking, oh, my God, how am I going to get this piece of evidence admitted or explain it to a jury since I can't personally testify
0: (laughs) in the case? I mean, we need to start off with unbounded creativity. But at some point, we also have to look at things like rules of evidence, you know, know, have and and all the other stuff, you know, the other stuff I found. Do I need to give to their side? Have I given to their side? When's the best time, you know? I personally believe I'm doing it as early as I can, but when is the best time to give it to the other side? What do the rules require? Uh, you know, I think all that is important in the stuff we need to look at. You know, sometimes you, we talked about three plus hours kind of by yourself, working on a case, but we also sometimes do work days. Uh, and, you know, one of the things Rodney Jews, if you listen to this, you've heard a lot about Rodney, because I'm a big Rodney fan. Uh, but he says, everyone, no one is smarter than everyone. And they're, there are times when we have two to six people working on a case together for a whole day or most of a day. What's that all about?
2: Um, you know, it's one of the most uh, rewarding things, I think, that we all do as a group together in terms of case work. Um, and the reason it's so rewarding is because everybody has ideas and, um, and you get a different perspective on the case. It's so important to get other people that aren't working on the case uh, get them involved in these work days so that, you know, you're not sort of shouting into a vacuum, right? You you have someone to bounce the ideas off of and maybe your idea is ridiculous and you need to know now if it's ridiculous and it doesn't yeah. make any sense. You need to know now and you need to come up with a different idea. But if you're just doing this by yourself, you lose out on someone telling you your idea is ridiculous, which
0: and is you, important. And you lose out on their ideas right? and, and you lo- lose out on just the collaborative process when you have an idea, then someone else helps improve it, and then you go off them. What works and what doesn't, and you know, I think more than six is a mistake. Uh, two's better than none. I think you know three to six is kind of the ideal number of people for this. Uh, the other thing is on a full day, you have different people fade in and out. I mean, we make everyone stay in. If they're going to do it. You got to be there for the day. But attention, having six people pay attention all day, every second of the day, is unlikely. But you always have enough people engaged.
2: I think. Um I don't want to gloss over something that you said there that I think is so important for this to work, is that the people that are participating have to be committed to spending the time with you on the case to do the brainstorming. So what you can't have is um, someone start the day and have some ideas and then leave to go do a hearing and then come back and sort of jump in in the middle. And you know then you have to catch them up. And then it's just not as productive. So exactly. when, if you're going to do it and to do it right, you have to all set aside the time to be there and be there for that case only, not for your own case, not for a different case, not to talk about other issues, but you need to be there for that case.
0: Um, And if you're at it, and one, it doesn't just have to be lawyers. I mean, there's a real advantage to having non-lawyers because your jury is going to be non-lawyers and getting a non-lawyer point of view on a case. I think is really useful. Uh, They also at a firm is great because you have lots of people you can brainstorm with, but it doesn't have to be at a firm. And, you know, a lot of lawyers I know like, just to brainstorm cases. Like I'll have lunch and brainstorm a case with somebody. They don't have to bring me on the case uh, because I love doing it and it's fun. Uh, But so, you know, you get a group of friends that you all want to become better lawyers. And so you, you know, you say, okay, we're going to meet one Saturday a month or some of that. And we're going to take turns bringing a case and we're all going to help each other. Uh, There's real value to that. It doesn't have to be, you know, well, this only works if you're at a big firm and you have enough, you know, six lawyers that can go meet in a room.
2: Yeah. You know, one of the, um, things that we started doing at the firm. Um, We did it informally before, but we have now have a formal Tuesday lunch with all the lawyers. Um, And right now it's through Zoom, but hopefully soon we can all do it in person. But it's a Tuesday lunch and it's uh, we call it the case valuation lunch. Um, And we're talking about sending demands and negotiation strategies, but inevitably during a conversation about that case, um, we come up with new ideas about the case. We come up with an idea for a piece of discovery that we might want. Or, um, you know, one of the other lawyers might, you know, in order to prepare for the case valuation, might have Googled the company and found something really great that you had never found before, or reviewed a dashcam video that was on one of my cases. Someone watched the dashcam video and saw something that I never saw in it before. It just never popped out at me. And when she pointed it out, I, I thought, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't see that before. Um, and so, even spending that 30 minutes to an hour during lunch um, once a week just even that is, is helpful because you're just talking about ideas and uh, helps you be more creative.
0: Yeah. And definitely collaborating. And again, if, if you have people within your firm, that's great. Uh, but also, you know, just network. I mean, I, I still do that with, I have, you know, I'm lucky to have made friends with a lot of other lawyers that specialize in trucking cases. And, you know, we really miss each other because we would go to several conferences and conventions a year. And, you know, at this point, I go more to hang out with them and, and, and I learn more at first, I learned a ton of stuff in the CLE. Now I've heard a lot of that after doing this for 20-something years, but the conversations we have over dinner, over drinks, where we're talking about our cases and brainstorming. And so we're doing like our own Zoom happy hours just and maybe agree, hey, I've got this case, anyone want to brainstorm it? And, you know, doing it over Zoom or over a phone call, you know, it's not the same as being in person. I miss where we are herd animals or group animals. I mean, there's something that I've really missed about person to person and now that we're. Trying to do limited, safe, socially distanced, uh, but some more in-person interactions that are affirmed by having some people come to the office. It, it, it has changed things. And I, I found that I'm getting a lot more out of this than I did out of the Zoom
2: stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Zoom is a tool. Um, it's it's what we have. But ideally, you would be doing a lot of this stuff in, in person. Wow. So... Um, you know these are some of the things that we've talked about in terms of maximizing the value of every case um, there's also something to be said about you're not you're not maximizing the value of every case by wasting time on it um so if it's a case that's worth what it's worth um and there are cases like that you recognize it early and you spend the amount of time that's appropriate for what it's worth absolutely <laughs> um Can you say a little bit
1: more about
0: that, Mike? Yeah, I mean, I think you just have to really look at the case. And I think it's part of really meeting the client because the client's exhibit A. And there's some cases that the client is going to present so poorly that it would just take an incredible amount of horrible conduct on the defense to motivate a jury to want to give this person money, for example. Uh, Some people, you know, had really, really good recoveries. And there's a limited amount of money. Sometimes liability is really tough. And you either need to reject the case or settle for what you can and move on to the next one. So I think that's part of it. You know, when you, when you look at a case carefully, then you decide, okay, it's triage. We only have so many hours in the day. So I want to put my time where it's going to produce the best results. And frankly, that's where the joy is. The joy in law on the plaintiff's side is getting, putting a bunch of time into something, coming creative, getting a cool story, cool demonstratives, and then, you know, getting to either pay you a bunch of money or going to trial and getting a big win. It's not very fun to put a bunch of money into something <laughs> and it's a crappy case and you still got to settle for, you know, pennies on the dollar because the right. case sucks or losing it right. uh, because you wouldn't let it go. And I see this all the time. I mean, I have people like they get into the case and they want this to be a big case. And I, I've i done this in the past myself and it's not a good case, but they won't let it go and they won't stop working on it and, you know, you have to really look at that. Yeah. There are some cases that no one else thought was a good case and you were right. You were able to discover that story. But a lot of times a dog's a dog and you know, it's never going to be a good case or or the damages aren't there and it's just not worth the time and effort. And then if you spend the money on it, you spend the money doing focus groups, creating exhibits, hiring experts, there ain't going to be any money left for your client. uh,
2: Um, so you mentioned something that, uh, is we've talked about on the podcast a few times as focus groups. Um, but there is some strategic use of focus groups very early, early in the case before, you know, almost anything about it um, that can save you a lot of money and time. And that can also point you in a direction you didn't think you would go. So um, what is your experience with those strategic use of focus groups, at the very beginning yeah. of cases?
0: So very beginning you're doing what's like a concept group. So you're showing juries like, picture of the crash, the crash scene, or you're talking about a type of injury here. And you really kind of see what people think. One, you learn what questions to ask. You learn what might be important, what might not. You're not predicting things at all. Although sometimes if it's a novel theory, if people just say, no way. Yeah, I think one, we we're talking yeah. about like, you know, should we explore training and driving a utility cart, which is a big golf cart. And when we brought it up to the focus group, they laughed.
2: Yeah, they uh, that was unpleasant.
0: And so if they're laughing at you when you're first presenting it, it may not be the most persuasive theory to pursue. Uh, so I think there's some real value there to just, yeah, you don't know much, but just showing people the limited information you have and just saying, what else do you want to know? What other questions do you have? What are your initial thoughts just to find out? Cause it can really guide you. And sometimes you get lucky. I mean, we had an oil field explosion case and you know, we did a concept group. Only three people showed up and we were supposed to have 12 Uh, but they all knew something about the oil field and we ended up learning a lot of things. One, we didn't quite understand what happened. Right. Uh, but we learned so much from that group of what to ask for, what people thought, what they thought was important, how they viewed these companies and safety and training. Uh, and it made the rest of the case go so much more smoothly, even though when I first saw only three people, I was pissed.
2: Oh yeah. Um, I remember that focus group. I was there and we, (laughs) we had it all planned out and we had all this stuff we were going to show. And then three people showed up and it was so disappointing But that was one of the best focus groups we did in that case. I mean, it was just – they have such a wealth of information. And since it was so early, we could get all the answers to their questions still. So the worst thing to do is have a focus group right before trial when you can't do any more discovery and they ask questions that you can't get answers to anymore until you start the trial. So you don't know what the answers are going to be.
0: Yeah, I think right before trial, you're not really doing focus groups. You're practicing in front of an audience, uh, which is important too. I think the – you need to do focus groups early on enough uh, where you're able to do something with the information you have. Now, the only difference would be if you're hiring a true social scientist. I mean, someone like Professor Campbell that we, that we interview on this podcast who can go and, you know, do something scientific to 400 people to find out what your odds are winning and losing or you're getting like a. David Ball and Artemis or Richard Jensen or someone else that can really go and scientifically analyze what are your odds of winning or losing should you take this case to trial? Are your damages, you know, realistic? But it's the big picture stuff. What works, what themes, what you need you look for. If you're doing that a week before trial, it's too late. Yeah. Um, and all it's going to do is freak you out. I mean, just, <laughs> yeah. It's much better to do, like, practice your opening and make sure they understood you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that we're not doing with focus groups that we I plan to start doing, we need to be doing is putting our clients, our, our experts, our key witnesses in front of focus groups and to see what they think about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think for when we have that one client that we know is, is going to say stupid things or try to p- explain everything away or try to prove their case, I think there's, there's something to letting them tell that story, having them leave the room, videotape someone discussing that story, and then letting the client see it. Yeah. And realize, hey, this wasn't such a good idea. I think there's some real power to doing that.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: And experts, too, that are. if you're stuck with somebody, maybe someone's hired the person or you didn't discover that they're kind of a pompous ass until you're doing a depo prep. You know, there's some some practice with that or even sh- showing the depo cross and showing the focus group and then showing them, look, when you were being evasive and you were being a smart ass, this is what people thought about you. You know, this doesn't play well. This is why you need to work with me. Yeah. Of course they'll still bill you by the hour to show them that they're screw up.
2: But, but. <laughs> you know though, I've um when I broached uh working on um, direct and cross examination with experts, many of them are more receptive to it than you think that they will be. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't I will encourage you to ask and talk to them about it um in a way that's um it's about preparing for trial. Um, but that you want to practice with your exhibits or you want to practice with uh, the question and answer. And many of them are very, very receptive to it. You get the ones that are not, but um, I encourage people to don't be afraid to ask them because I I have had people that are more interested in it than I thought that they would be based on their personality. You know, Um,
0: I guess the last thing I want to say, because we're at a point where we need to start wrapping up is, you know, what we've talked about is really good stuff on the liability stuff, on the expert stuff. But if you want to maximize the value of your case and know the value of your case, you have to really get to know your client. And that means spending some time with your client without an agenda where you're just talking to them, getting to know them, hanging out with the client, uh, meeting other people that know the client, family members, hopefully friends or coworkers. Uh, when all oh, this COVID stuff is over, just going to their house, not just talking to them in their, ter- their turf so they're comfortable, but just looking at the house, the pictures on the wall, the way it's set up. You get a feel for people
1: mm-hmm.
0: and, uh, and you just see the way they interact with their children, seeing the way they interact with their family and their friends. It, it, you just get a, a gut feeling for somebody. And when you feel them, even if the words don't come out, you express it better. Uh, and I guess I want to close by you only win a simple case. We can't win a complex, complicated case. Complexity is favors the defense. But to make a case simple, you first have to work through all of the complexity. Uh, And that just takes time. So that at the end, I think Michael Lieserman's two questions. I love Michael Lieserman too. And he's like, this question, this case is important because blank. This case is simple because blank. And it's just a very short few words. Uh, And if you can't do that, it's going to be hard to win your case. But you can't do that until you work through all the complexity which means you've got to give the case the time and effort it deserves.
2: Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And uh, you know, this the theme of this podcast is maximizing the value of every case. And I just want people to remember that maximizing the value doesn't mean getting twenty million dollars in every case. It's I would value? <laughs> I know that would be nice, but it's the value of that case. So you need to think about that carefully when you're allocating your time and your resources to yeah. different things.
0: Well, y'all, I've actually learned from having this discussion. I've been thinking of things. I always learn from talking to Mallory. And then just like working uninterrupted on a case, you get better ideas. Doing a podcast, you get some better ideas. (laughs) I hope this was useful to y'all, too. I hope this helps you get better justice for your clients. And frankly, I hope this makes more money for you and your families and that everyone is safe and healthy and that we find ways to prosper this year. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff lawyer-only content, In live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation.
1: Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.